Last week, I decided to take a trip to my local grocery store in Frederick, Maryland, with a mission. Taking my greens. Go do my thing. I have uh, one shopping bag full of all my greens and some bowls. And I have another shopping bag full of full-size candy bars. I set myself up with five bowls of grains next to the shopping carts so that I could catch people on their way in the store. Any chance I can bother you for five minutes? Any chance I can bug you for like three minutes? Can I talk to you for like three minutes? It's a game. I have prizes. <laughs> I'm a journalist. So I have these grains, and um, I just want to ask you real quick yeah. if you recognize them. So this one right here, what is what is this guy? They're corn kernels. Cor- corn kernels. <laughs> Perfect. I had some that were fairly obvious. Rice. Rice. That looks like corn. That uh, looks like wheat. It appears to be corn. Corn. And some that were a little trickier. This one? It's like birdseed. <laughs> Chia seed? Uh, it's quinoa. Uh, so, um, so that's progressively harder. And then, and then this one. The grand finale. Hmm. Don't know. What does it look like to you? Looks like uh, ground sea salt. I'm not even going to try to guess. <laughs> yeah, it looks like sand. <laughs> it, it does. It kind of looks like sand. Nobody guessed this one. Yeah, what does okay. it feel like? No, it's it, it's grainy, but 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 it's not grainy hard. It's yeah. grainy like if you put liquid on it, it's gonna dissolve. This grainy little grain, it's called phonium. I've got another one in here. If you want to take it with you, oh, I would like to try it. Yeah, cool. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm glad I stopped. I'm making curry goat tomorrow. Jamaican oh. curry goat. But as great as Phonio may be with that goat, that's not all it's about. Some people think it might just save the world. So today, we're going to introduce you to one of those people. I'm Lacey Healy, and this is Things That Go Boom. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. Fonio is a tiny little grain that looks like couscous, and uh, it's been cultivated for over 5,000 years in Africa. It used to be cultivated all across Africa. This is Pierre Chiam, and... He's got a lot on his plate, so to speak. He's a celebrated chef with restaurants in New York, Lagos, and Dakar. He's also an author, an activist. He's an entrepreneur. And he really likes Fonio. It's quite delicious. It cooks in five minutes. Like, a lot. They call it the grain for royalty because of its delicate taste. And it's quite versatile because it has a neutral flavor, so it can be adapted to so many different types of cuisines. And it's a nutrition powerhouse. It's gluten-free, rich in proteins. It's, it's fluffy. It doesn't have the heaviness of couscous. It's easy to digest. Fonio scores low on the glycemic index. So there's like so much going for Fonio. Fonio is in the same category as the cereal grains that we're all familiar with, like rice, wheat, and corn. It's basically just grass with nutritious seeds. But Pierre told us that Fonio's magic goes well beyond just being a tasty alternative option for a side dish. Because unlike its world-famous friends, 
Bonio is naturally well adapted to grow in some particularly tough conditions. It's amazing for the environment because Fonio can grow in poor soil. It's a grain that grows in an area called the Sahel, which is south of the Sahara Desert. The Sahel stretches across the continent of Africa from Senegal on the Atlantic Ocean all the way to Sudan on the Red Sea. And it's an area where crop failures come at an especially high cost. The UN warned last spring that 18 million people across the region are facing severe hunger. That area is dry, it's arid, but Fonio can grow there. It can actually thrive there because it's a drought-resistant grain. And it has this amazing thing because it has deep roots that add nutrients to the soil, so it regenerates the soil. So there's so many things that I can tell you about Fonio. It's good for you, it's good for the environment, it's good for the planet, it's good for the foodies. There's a saying that says, Fonio never embarrasses the cook. That's what the Bambara people say. Today, Pierre is Mr. Fonio. He gives TED Talks. This tiny grain may provide big answers, taking us one step closer to the universal civilization. Thank you. And he gives onstage Fonio cooking lessons to people like Bill Gates. We're going to cook Fonio, and I'm going to go around and explain to each one of you what you are supposed to do. We start with Bill. Your hands are clean. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is, this is what you're going to do. But this is not necessarily how he saw his life going. My younger self would be <laughs> laughing for sure. Pierre was born in Senegal. And as a kid, he lived in the capital city. So he didn't think too much about this grain from his homeland. Growing up in Dakar, I never even had Fonio. I would have Fonio only when I would go during the summer vacation to visit my grandparents in the south. As a young man in the late 80s, Pierre moved from Dakar to New York City and started his career as a chef in the U.S., but he noticed that something was missing. The food from my place of origin were not represented in the so-called food capital of the world. And I was like, this is a big mess and this is a big opportunity. He started introducing West African dishes in the restaurants where he worked, then eventually opened his own restaurant and started writing cookbooks focused on the food he grew up with. The first cookbook was about the food that was inspiring me. The second cookbook, I wanted to go and meet the farmers, meet the producers, and get that story to my audience. So he boarded a plane, and he flew to Senegal. And as I'm traveling, I'm in that part of Senegal called Kedugu, in like the most remote part of Senegal. And that's where the Fonio cultivation is still very vibrant. Pierre describes Kedugu as a stunningly beautiful place that wows visitors with views of the Futajalan Mountains. But it's also one of the poorest regions in the world, a place where people go hungry. And it's there that he rediscovers the grain that would drastically change his career. I'm being offered this grain and I'm like, oh wow, I remember this flavor from childhood. This was so delicate. How come this is not accessible? Because this grain, I'm sure in New York City, people would love it. I am a chef in New York City, and I'm like, I know if I present it in my restaurant. And it's getting to be early 2000, and quinoa is starting to become a thing. I'm going to show you how to make quinoa. Quinoa is spelled Q-U-I-N-O-A, which would make you think that it was pronounced quinoa, but it's actually pronounced quinoa. And I'm like, well, this grain from the Andes in Latin America made it to the world, so Fonio could have the same trajectory. And I can learn from the lessons, you know, avoid to fall into the same pits that quinoa fell into. You know, there are some things that the quinoa, unfortunately, didn't do to benefit the, those who should be the ultimate beneficiaries, the, the small farmers. 
Without collaboration from small farmers, increased fonio production might fail to provide the benefits that Pierre hopes to see. Let's not turn fonio into a cash crop. You know, this is not what it's about. We need to support the whole system. You know, we need to support the community that's growing them. Fonio wasn't always so obscure. Once upon a time, it was highly prized, cultivated across a large part of the continent and even entombed with the pharaohs in Egypt. That's just the funny thing about it, is a grain like this is not accessible in the big cities in Africa. The market is not there. We keep thinking of fonio as like this peasant grain. It's like this crop for people from the country. Sometimes you would see crops that travel from further, like we grow wheat. We eat wheat, sorry, we don't grow wheat. We eat baguette bread. You know, the French colonial past in Senegal has made it such a thing that wheat is a big thing. The French colonized Senegal and held the territory until Senegalese independence in 1959. And while they were in control, the French chose to shape local agriculture in ways that were most beneficial to them, meaning that Fonio didn't just fade out of use. It was pushed out. It's a story that Pierre sees written all throughout the cuisine from his homeland. I mean, for me, in case of Senegal, I can be looking at my national dish, chebujan, which is a dish with broken rice, and fish and vegetables. It's a delicious dish, but the broken rice is intriguing. Why is it broken rice? And you realize that broken rice is actually not a whole rice, it's rice debris from processed rice. And then it takes you to colonial time, and then you realize that there's a moment where the French wanted the Senegalese farmers to grow peanuts and cotton. French had a big empire, so they, they had Indochina in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, they had a rice-growing culture, but when they were growing rice after processing it, the debris, the Vietnamese, would take it away for their animal feed. So the French took those debris and brought it to Senegal so that the farmers in Senegal wouldn't be growing millet or fonio or stuff like that. They would grow peanuts and cotton. and the debris imported in shipping containers from Vietnam would be feeding us. And we embraced it, and we such good cooks, we made these great dishes with it. But even 60 years after independence, we are still importing rice debris from Vietnam to make this national dish. It goes without saying that as much as Pierre still loves to cook and eat dishes like Chebujan, He'd also like to see native grains like Fonio make a comeback. But Fonio's comeback isn't without its challenges. Fonio is a tiny grain that's easy to grow, but difficult to process. You know, because it has a skin that needs to be removed. The skin is inedible. The processing was time-consuming. At first, Fonio was processed with a mortar and pestle, so it was manual. So to have like one kilo of Fonio, it would take two hours of pounding. But Pierre says that some specialized processing equipment is now available to process one ton of fonio per day. Now we're setting up a mill in Mali to process the fonio. And that mill is connected with a network of small farmers that we contract every season to produce fonio for the mill. It's all a part of Pierre's plan to find a global market for fonio. I just thought I would start first by introducing it to my clients at the restaurant and then gradually to introduce it to other chefs, my colleagues who are always looking for new products, new ingredients. And then eventually the consumers will ask for it and the the market will be open to distributing it. That was the naive thinking behind this thing. I was like, I'm going to. (laughs) 
I'm laughing because Pierre's actual journey doesn't look too different from the path he's describing here. About a decade ago, he started sharing Phonio with people in the U.S. One day, he sat down with his publisher, and they started talking about the Phonio chapter in his new cookbook. And he could see right away that she was excited about Phonio's potential. So he kept sharing. And as I'm telling the story, everyone is fascinated. And I'm bringing some Fonio samples to chefs. And they're all having fun and making things that you never thought you could be making with Fonio. I was making sushi with Fonio instead of rice. I was making some beautiful stuff. And you can bake with Fonio. So everyone was, uh, was very encouraging. And that kept me going. I was like, I can do it. We can introduce Fonio to the world. If Pierre was going to make Fonio a household name, though... He was going to have to team up with someone who knew the ins and outs of ancient grains. I have to say I shouldn't take the credits for taking it to the masses. I partnered with my co-founder, Philip Tevro, who's also a veteran in the food industry. Philip has been working on this stuff since the quinoa craze. And the two of them, they teamed up with a distributor who had the skills to manage logistics and get the products to the market. Then they built up those critical relationships with farmers in West Africa to grow the Fonio. And that meant that all that was left to do was get people interested in buying Fonio. The first client we approached was Whole Foods because Whole Foods were opening one in Harlem in, near my, my restaurant. So I was there myself just cooking, doing some cooking demo and tastings at Whole Foods, having a small table. I'm going to admit this feels a little bit like Banksy selling art at the subway station or Beyonce showing up at my local karaoke bar. And every time we would do that, we would just sell out the Fonio every single time we would do a cooking demo. People would taste it and they would just connect with it. And then they would go on the shelves and buy the Fonio. Sales were so successful that Fonio is now available in Whole Foods nationwide. And they're still expanding. So that's also the thing because the company Yolele is an African food brand. So we want it to be not just about one grain, but about a food culture. So they've introduced some ready-to-cook products like a Fonio pilaf. It's full of veggies that are native to the Sahel. That one has moringa in it. It uh, has baobab in it. So it has the, all those really underutilized crops from the region that are very nutritious, very special, and that grow there in, in a way that's sustainable. We also have chips now. The chips is our entrance into the snack category with ingredients like, you know, dawa dawa, which is a fermented locust bean from West Africa as well. That brings, an, uh, we call it the Afro-funk. It brings a nice umami flavor to it. Interestingly, we even have a Fonio beer that we did a collaboration with Brooklyn Brewery. So that was a limited edition Brooklyn Brewery. And, oh, and, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was really cool. Really delicious uh, white beer. Quite delicious, actually. But this diversity isn't just nice for Brooklynites who get to drink a new type of craft beer, or even for the farmers with access to new markets for their crops. Diversifying the global diet is key to ensuring prosperity, political stability, and ultimately, even the survival of everyone on Earth. That's after the break. A couple of weeks ago, in between a first-grade basketball game and the 14th kid's birthday party of the week, if you know, you know, I was trying to catch up on some news. 
and I caught sight of what seemed to be a new buzzword roaming around in the wilds of global affairs. What we call the three C's. Let me speak to something which I think is very important, cutting across all the three C's. The three C's, we call it. The three C's refer to climate change, conflict, and COVID. And they're all bad enough on their own. But together, it turns out they're wrecking the global food supply. You can see them behind everything from inflated grocery prices to famine. And unfortunately, risks like the three C's are not going away. We've actually unwittingly made them more dangerous with some really bad agricultural strategy. And that's how foolish we are. I mean, how can we rely on like four crops? And those crops are grown in concentrated regions of the world. If there's something that happened in that region, the whole world is in trouble. You've probably heard that wheat from Ukraine has been destroyed, delayed, or just never planted because of Russia's invasion and the ongoing war. And regions in Russia and Ukraine typically grow about one-third of all the wheat consumed around the world. In fact, all of the top crops in the world are highly regionally concentrated like this. Most rice just comes from one region in China. And a great proportion of the world's soy is grown in a subregion of Brazil, corn in the American Midwest. When just one of these breadbasket areas can't produce, we see food prices go up and food security go down. But it isn't hard to imagine how several of these critical zones could get hit at once. That could be a war, that could be a gene, that could be a, something wrong with the seeds itself. And we're ignoring thousands of other crops. We're ignoring them. You know, we're ignoring fonio, we're ignoring millet, we're ignoring sorghum, we're ignoring amaranth. All those crops are there that we need to figure out how to integrate them into our food system in case there's a problem with wheat in Ukraine or there's a problem with corn in that region where corn is being grown. About half of the calories that humans consume around the world come from just corn, rice, wheat, and soy. There are tens or even hundreds of thousands of edible plants in the world, but humans only cultivate a couple of hundred of those at any significant scale. And the real scientific research and concerted effort to improve agriculture goes to just a tiny fraction of those. Areas like the Sahel that the Western world has overlooked and exploited for generations, they have an abundance of plants that could feed the world. One quarter of the world's food plant diversity is in Africa. You know, crops like fonio that have not been developed, that are not being distributed, that are just being ignored. They call them lost crops. They call them orphan crops. They have all kinds of names for that to just tell you how they're being ignored. And when there's a crisis anywhere around the world, Africa or Senegal, we're facing challenges because there's disruption. There's always a risk of famine. And we haven't even exploited our own resources, our own crops. Fonio is there that grows easily and that is much more delicious and healthier than, than wheat, but it's there and people are dying of hunger. Pierre says that utilizing these orphan crops could go way beyond just preventing famine in African countries. So Africa is a continent that is a net importer of food. And that's amazing when you think of it as that continent that has 60% of the world's arable land. We should be feeding the world. That's an opportunity for the world to actually really rethink the food system by 
taking advantage of not only these underutilized crops that are in Africa, but of the land that's arable, that's there, that's still healthy, you know, unlike other parts of the world that has destroyed the soil because of monoculture or unhealthy agricultural practices and chemicals and all of that. So Africa has a great opportunity. The world has a great opportunity providing Obviously, that we realize that and we approach it in a way that's considering the communities, that's also considering the health of the planet, the health of the people, of the consumers. It's just a different approach, but it's a revolution. Unlike the farmland shortage facing China and lots of other places, the African continent has more land than it needs to be self-sufficient. But right now in places like the Sahel, that isn't enough to alleviate famine or poverty. Because... Remember all that corn, soy, and wheat the world is eating? Well, those plants thrive in Iowa or southeast China. But they tend to wither away in Senegal. And without strong markets for the crops that can thrive locally, communities struggle. When I was doing my research for the book and I end up in this part of Senegal where they still grow fonio, but there's no youth there because there's no jobs. This grain that they grow, they just grow it for their bowl, for their lunch and dinner and for their food, but they don't have a market for it, so it's not a source of income. So those kids, those youth are leaving. And you see the tragedy, you may or may not have heard of what's happening in Europe and like hundreds and thousands of Africans are arriving. And you should see now the conditions in which they are living. Some of them are trying to cross the Sahara Desert like they buy food. For months they're crossing the Sahara, half of them make it. Some take dugout fishing boats and try to cross the Mediterranean. They go from Senegal to Spain and those migrants, they take all their family savings. They get the blessings from their parents to go and risk their lives to try to go to Europe to have a job, to make a living and send money back home. Large-scale agriculture requires many types of workers, not just farmers, but factory workers and marketers and drivers and strategists. And Pierre hopes that new professional opportunities at home might allow more young people to stay. They, some of them go just to go to Dakar, to the cities. And, and that's just... All of it is connected to hunger, to lack of opportunities. Those kids just want to have jobs. And if they have those jobs and that at home, if they have their food guaranteed at home, no one would want to leave a beautiful region like Kedugu. I mean, it's like you have your family, your loved ones there. They're not doing it because they want to die, but they just have no other option. And that's what we have to realize. And that's a problem that concerns all of us. I mean, Europe is like upset. You see the rise of all kinds of protectionism and they want to stop these migrants to arrive. But they have to realize that they're also connected to the situation out there. The Biden administration has said that the U.S. wants strong relationships with the countries of Africa, which is why in December, it hosted a summit with 49 leaders from African states. Members spent three days in Washington, D.C., talking about a bunch of subjects. Climate change, conflict, food security. But not everyone was impressed with the conversation. I'm hoping that the United States can begin to realize it's no longer business as usual. It's no longer a case of the United States saying, we make policy and we tell the Africans. That has got to change. Dr. Ari Kana Chimbori-Kwao is a former African Union representative to the U.S. 
And she told a reporter for Al Jazeera that the agenda for the summit was developed without input from African leaders. And that that lack of respect is threatening the U.S.'s position as the preferred trading partner of many African countries. You go in feeling superior, you come back feeling superior. That is not an issue with the Chinese. They understand that Africa has something they need, so they will come to the Africans. They will come and make sure that they let the Africans know that you matter to us, that our relationship with you does matter, that you don't get that feeling with the United States. You get the feeling that there's this sense of superiority, that you Africans, you ought to be glad that we are engaging you. You ought to be glad that we are inviting you to come to Washington. That sense of superiority, it has to change. The U.S. strategy toward Africa often feels like an afterthought compared to strategy in Asia or Europe. And policies focused on avoiding disaster can miss the chance to cultivate opportunities. As we all struggle with three Cs and head into a future where food access could be precarious, Pierre says that recognizing Africa's strengths is key. Africa is going to be 2 billion people on the planet in like in 20 years, not even. The solution is in our own soil. The solution is not by sending aid to Africa. Sending wheat, what is it going to do? Sending flour, sending corn, maize. No, there's crops that are there that not only by using them and unlocking them, by promoting them, by opening markets for them, you give jobs, you feed yourself, you feed the planet, you save the environment, you save biodiversity. I mean, for me, it's like going to school every time I travel and, and go in those regions and spend time just with the farmers. And that's knowledge that is being transmitted for generations. Imagine how our ancestors domesticated those crops and then figured out how to create recipes and cook those recipes. And those recipes are transmitted from generation to generation, especially in, in Senegal, in Africa. It's like the mother is passing the recipe to her daughter. It's still being done this way. And the daughter, she cooks the recipe, but that recipe is connecting her directly to like the great, great, great grandmother who had passed it on. So it's like this direct link and that's beautiful. You know, that really is really when food is at its right place, when it's food is culture, food is community, food is getting us together, and food is playing that role. Pierre has known that food could bring people together since he was a little kid in Senegal, where there's a particular word for sharing with those around you. We call it teranga. It's the name of my restaurant. Teranga is when you share the, you know, the best of what you have, and usually it's symbolized by the food. You know, we think the stranger, the person, especially the unexpected guest, is like some kind of an angel that's bringing a blessing and you can receive the blessing by giving him food or him or her food. I wake up inspired that I'm doing something right for, for my people. Seeing them take pride in something that's been passed upon them by their ancestors is one thing. In addition to that, it's having a great impact on the environment. That's amazing. I grew up in time of Senegal where we had like desertification. The, the desert was approaching, it was really scary. Famine was coming, you know, and then in the 80s, famine in Ethiopia. So all of those things didn't make sense when I understood that we have the most arable land in the world. We have crops that are there, that are resilient, that can feed us and feed the world, you know. My younger self, <laughs> he will be proud to, to see that I brought Teranga with me. I kept that culture with me. I was trying to bring my culture and, and that led me to here. I had no idea that I would be one day just be the champion of Fonio. 
that go boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. This episode was produced by Nikki Galtaland and me and edited by Katie Toth and Christina Stella. The music for our show is written by Darian Shulman and Robin Wise makes each episode sound as fantastic as corn in a bowl. Thanks to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible. The Carnegie Corporation of New York and Poshers Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. If you're listening and you like what we do, we'd love to hear from you. Go on over and leave us a review and come and visit us anytime on social at Inkstick Media. We'll see you right back here with our final episode of the season in two weeks. They call it the grain for royalty. There's a saying that says, Fonio never embarrasses the cook. They call it the seed of the universe. They call it the women's grain. They're saying Fonio is a, is a lazy farmer's crop. You know what? We have a saying. I like to say sayings, right? But in Senegal, we say when you lost, you have to go back to where you came from.